Be seated. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Hosea chapter 13 for the second last time. Lord willing, we'll finish the prophet Hosea next week, but we'll look at uh, chapter 13 this evening. The entire thing, I call it terror for the guilty. So we'll begin reading at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sinned more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know, uh, have, you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore they forgot me. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their ribcage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. Amen. Well, let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we truly do not know how much we owe and truly we do not know, truly know what our sin deserves. And yet there are many passages in scripture that give apt descriptions of what judgment looks like and the terror that it brings. We know that idolatry is vile. We know that it is wicked. We know that there are many heinous things that are done in this world, and they do deserve righteous judgment. And so we're thankful for jarring language that awakens us, jarring language that causes us to stop and consider, causes us to be reminded of Christ and what he has done. And yet we're thankful for these stark contrasts that we see in your word, the vileness and wickedness of sin and where judgment leads but also where hope lies, and we're thankful that that is with Christ. Thank you that he has defeated death. Thank you that he has defeated the grave. Thank you that it is in him we have life everlasting. And we're thankful that even your remnant under the old covenant, even your true saints who looked ahead to Christ to come, had these prophecies, had these prophecies concerning the resurrection from the dead. And we're thankful that we can see it further now in fuller revelation and we ask and pray even tonight as we come and consider these difficult texts that you would give us illumination from on high. We pray that you would strengthen. We pray that you would rebuke. We pray that you would convict. And we pray that you would encourage as well as we consider who you are, as we consider your righteous judgment 
but also your goodness and the salvation of sinners. So we pray that you be with us tonight by your spirit, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when I was a teenager, I watched movies that I probably shouldn't have, and they terrified me, so much so that I slept with the light on for quite some time. Uh, I'm not embarrassed about it now, I was then, but uh, it was a terrifying thing to watch, and I wanted to have the light on. And then I read Hosea 13 this past week, and you see some terrifying things that the prophet uses, that our Lord God uses, to describe the seriousness of sin and describe the seriousness of idolatry and where that leads. What we read tonight and what we're going to see tonight can be quite blood-curdling when we consider the description that Yahweh uses to describe what he is going to do to a rebellious people, what he's going to do to a vile and wretched people in his righteous judgment. Now, throughout the prophet Hosea, there's been a lot of exposing of sin, a lot of serious language used to describe judgment, which shouldn't surprise us when we come to Hosea 13, although I think it's uh, one of the harshest uh, that we've seen. Yet throughout this book, we've seen this jarring kind of uh, what God is going to do by way of judgment, but also there's been encouragement by way of hope as well. And so even though there's some difficult language when it comes to his judgment and what he's going to do, there's still some encouraging words that we see, especially in verse 14. Now, Israel, as the old covenant people, needed to be warned, needed to be reminded of who God is and what would happen to them if they do not do what God had said. And thankfully, there is still, again, that hope for the remnant, the true people of God, even as Israel as a nation is going to be sold into captivity for their violating the law of God, there is still hope for the true people of God who will be carried away as well. But we know that they look ahead to a greater land and a greater kingdom and a greater savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the people of Israel needed to be reminded. They needed that exposing of their sin and also reminded where that sin is going to lead. We've seen that that northern kingdom, this is the time of the divided kingdom, that northern kingdom is a terrible and vile kingdom. There is no king who does what is right. Every king does evil in the sight of the Lord. We've seen different imagery used throughout the prophet Hosea to describe this wayward and wicked people with the most potent and the one we probably all know best, namely, that is the marriage uh, between Yahweh and Israel seen in the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. And so the main message really is that picture, mainly what God will do to this adulterous wife in judgment, what he's going to do as he kicks her out of the land, but also there is hope as well with respect to restoration. And so we do come to that final section of the prophet Hosea, and it follows the key structure we've seen throughout the exposing of sin, the warning of judgment, about judgment, but also that prophecy and promise of restoration. And so tonight we're on to that second part when it comes to this final resolution. We saw the exposing of sin in chapter 12, a further reminder of what that sin is. And sin will be uh, also be reminded, they'll be reminded of their sin here in chapter 13 as well. But the focus seems to be on that warning about the just judgment that is going to come on a guilty people. And that really is the problem that we see in Hosea 13. Guilt and the terror of judgment. There is the guiltiness. Man is guilty before God most high. They are a guilty people. They have violated the law of God and are under his just condemnation. And the reality is Yahweh is a righteous judge and will rightly judge them based upon the fact that they did not do what he said according to the terms of the old covenant. 
And the idea of judgment is meant to be terrifying. And that's the emotion. That is the response that is meant to be elicited by what we see in chapter 13. It's meant to cause people to awake. It's meant to cause people to stop and consider. Stop and consider where sin is going to lead. They'd highlight that they might then flee uh, to to Christ. They might flee to the one that they can find refuge in. The one that they ought to be afraid of is the one they can find refuge in. That is why judgment is preached. Here's where it leads. Here's where your sin is going to lead you. It's going to lead to this just judgment. And he uses very eye-popping imagery to cause us to stop and consider. So in Hosea 13, Hosea warns about the terror of Yahweh's impending judgment. Terror and guilt seems to be in view. So it's the warning about the terror of Yahweh's impending judgment, but also where salvation lies. Where does our hope lie? Where is our life in? And that is in God. That is in Christ. That is not in idols, but in the one true and living God. But we still have to talk about the terror of judgment. So we'll look at this idea under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the guilt of Israel's idolatry in verses 1 through 8. And secondly, we'll see the grave for, uh, for the guilty in verses 9 through 16. So guilt, the guilt of Israel's idolatry, and the grave for the guilty in verses 9 through 16. So let's first look at the guilt of Israel's idolatry in verses 1 through 8. And notice in verses 1 through 3, we see Israel's increasing guilt. Last time we saw their vain strength. Last time we saw where they put their hope in. They put their hope in riches. They put their hope in Assyria. They put their hope... Uh, in idols rather than the one true and living God. They've rejected the Savior. They've rejected their God, and thus he will reject them. And remember, the old covenant is the foundation for this. Remember, the old covenant is a covenant of works regarding life in the land. And Israel said, we will do it. We will keep it all the way back in Deuteronomy, all the way back in Joshua. And what happens? They do not do that very thing. They do not keep that law. Certainly there are some good men, but even those good men are not perfect whatsoever. There is one who needs to come who must be perfect in every way. And so what we see here is Ephraim is Israel is going to receive what she deserves because her guilt increases. Her idolatry increases. Her pride has increased. And we see that in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, trembling. What is to be highlighted here is, to, uh, is meant to be that we see Ephraim is that dominant tribe. Highlight their vitality. Highlight their strength. Highlight their vigor. They were the mighty tribe. They were the dominant one in the north. Remember, there's two tribes in the south in Judah. And there are ten tribes in the north. And those, of those ten tribes, Ephraim was the dominant one. Ephraim had status. Ephraim had power. He exalts himself in Israel. But the one who had life and vitality is the one who is now dead. But when he offended, or perhaps when he brought guilt upon himself, and we shouldn't miss that this chapter is bookended by that term guilt with what we see in verse 16. So we see when he brought guilt through Baal worship. He worshipped another God. She worshipped another God. She worshipped one who is not the one true and living God. Rather than honoring God and doing what he said, rather than worshiping him aright and following his ways, Israel wanted to be like the nations around them. She is an, she is an adulterous wife, 
Also, he, Israel, is a wayward son, and we see that he offends, and thus he has died. And they've been dead for some time. Again, there's no good king in Israel. There's no righteous king. There's a remnant. There's 7,000 who have not kissed Baal and paid homage to him. Uh, But nonetheless, we see mainly in the north, it is always wickedness. When he offended through Baal, and remember, Hosea is primarily the prophet to that northern tribe. So they've died. And notice they keep dying. Notice in their death, they keep engaging in sin. They've died, but they just don't stop dying. Verse 2. Now they sin more and more. They increase in their wickedness. They increase in their idolatry. They have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. And so there perhaps is highlighting the different types of idols. Molded images probably draws our attention to the golden calf. And we see that there are golden calves in the north. There's that golden calf episode in Exodus 32, right after the people come out of the land of Egypt, there's this golden calf. Look, Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then when the kingdom is divided and Jeroboam sets up a rival to Jerusalem, a rival to the proper place of worship, what does he do at Bethel? He sets up golden calves. He sets up molded images and says, look, it's Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. A violation not just to the first commandment, but of the second commandment. Is Yahweh a cow? Is God a cow? Is God made of gold? That's why idolatry, that's why idol worship, that's why anything in the stead of God uh, denigrates the Lord God most high, and Israel kept doing that. They're idols of silver, they're idols of gold. It's all according to their skill, and all of it is according to the work of their craftsmen. They made it. It's the gods of their mind that they think they worship, and now they've fashioned them and they've formed them in such a way that they have made their gods rather than God being the one that made them, or rather than acknowledging that there is one who has made them. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Now again, 7,000 had not done this in the time of Elijah, but there are many who did There are many who bowed the knee to these golden calves, many who paid adoration and and worshiped these ones and showed their allegiance to these wicked and vile calves. Certainly, Aaron can be in view as well, that calf, but also during the time of Jeroboam and after him as well. Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. And so what does this all signify? It highlights that they are a deluded people. That they are people who do not know, a people who do not see, a people who are as fluffy as a cloud. Verse 3. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud, and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. So there's increase in idolatry, but there's also an increase in the likeness of that idol. An idol is worthless. An idol is like the wind that is just blown away. An idol is like a cloud that can just be blown away. An idol is like smoke. An idol is like chaff. It is nothing. It is something that has no substance. And we've seen this language before in Hosea 6. As the prophet there indicted the people for their love. How their love is fair weather. How their love is like a cloud. How their love has no substance. And so we see 
They're uh, just as their love is like a cloud, so will their fate be. They shall be blown away. They shall be nothing. They shall be worthless. They've demonstrated their faithlessness when it comes to loving God. They have not done that. And so what's going to happen to them? They shall be like that morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away. So their idolatry increases, but we also see their forgetfulness increases as well in verses 4 through 8. Notice we see the Savior that they've forgotten, verse 4. The God they've forgotten. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. He says something similar in chapter 12, 9. But I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I am the one who was your strength. I am the one who chose you and made you. I am the one who redeemed you out of captivity and out of slavery. I am this God and there has been no God but me. And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I am it. Now, this isn't just a reminder. You shall know no God but me. It's not even necessarily a command. You shall know no God but me. But it's countering their false notion. It's countering their idea that they can worship Baal and Asherah and Yahweh all at the same time. But God is, rem is reminding them, there is no one but me. And they have not worshipped him. And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. He's countering their false notions. Exodus 20 comes to mind when we consider the commandments and how he is the one true God, and there shall be no God, and there is no God like him. He is their Savior. He is the one true God, and they've rejected him. But not only that, he's been the one who's provided for them. He saved them, and he also sustained them. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. This is drawing our attention back to that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. After that first generation was faithless, after that first generation did not trust in the promise of God, what happened? They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But yet Deuteronomy 2 is very kind when it comes to the discussion about that. God says, I provided for you. You lacked nothing. God says, I was with you. I provided. I gave you all that you needed. You lacked nothing. And yet, what happens? Even that land of great drought, God provided for them. And God brought them into the land and had them have their fill in verse 6. He, they could eat all they wished, Psalm 81.10. They could eat all they desired. And they were filled. They had plentiful. They had much. But what happened? Verse 6. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. God warns them. In Deuteronomy 8, when you get into that land and you eat your fill, don't forget me. Don't grow fat in the land. Don't grow lazy in the land. Don't grow forgetful in that land. Remember me. And what do the people do? They went to that land. They ate too much. They grew fat and they forgot the Lord God most high. They became complacent in their ways. Therefore, they forgot me. And so what's going to happen to these large people, verses 7 and 8? They're going to be food for somebody else. And this is where we see some of that jarring language with this imagery of using these different beasts. And so we see how God is going to be like a lion. We saw how he's like a lion in Hosea chapter 5, verse 14. And here the idea of lion highlights he's going to be savage. He's going to inflict pain. 
He's also going to be like a leopard, verse 7. A leopard by the road I will lurk. He's going to be calculated. He is going to do so in a way that is right and just and in a way where he's almost as if he's lurking. He's planning this very thing. But he's also going to be like a bear. And this is the toughest part, I think, uh, with respect to what we read in verse 8. Now, the bear is not going to just maim. The bear has the intent to kill. That's why he's talking about a bear who is deprived of her cubs. She's not just trying to maim and take an arm off. She's going to take the whole person. I will meet them like a bear, deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage. It's mortal. It's going to be a mortal wound. And there I will devour them, Israel, like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Why does God have to be so graphic here? The idea of the rib cage being open. Why does it need to be so terrifying? It's because of what is said in verse 6. They forgot. Sometimes something jarring needs to be said so that the people of God wake up, that the people of God pay attention. And certainly the idea of a prophecy about a bear who's deprived of her cubs, who comes to rip out that cage, will get people's attention. And even then, did it get the people's attention? No, they still went into captivity. They still did not do what God said, but sometimes they needed to be terrified. And that's why we need to grasp that God is meant to terrify them with this language to cause them to stop and consider. The fattened people shall be food for the animals because they forgot God and their idolatry has increased. Now, once again, when we come to these passages, I always struggle a little bit when it comes to application. What do we talk about? What do we say? Well, I think we can reflect on how forgetful man is and how forgetful of God man is. I mean, unbelievers. I mean, they, God uh, has made them. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God has provided. But what does man do? He suppresses the truth in unrighteous man Unbelievers have no excuse before God most high. Man has been forgetful of God's goodness, has rejected his law, rejected in his kindness, and therefore man uh, in general is a guilty people, and those who do not believe in Christ shall die in their trespasses and sins. Man by nature, by his sinful nature, is forgetful of God, and as such deserves righteous judgment to come upon them. Thankfully, there is mercy in Christ, but we must confess, even as believers who are no longer guilty, who have been redeemed, that guilt has been taken away because of Christ and his imputed righteousness. We are justified in his sight, yet in our remaining corruption, it's easy for us to what? Be neglectful and forgetful. Brother, when it comes to the Christian life, you're either increasing or backsliding, not saying backsliding to the point where you apostatize if you're in Christ. You are Christ. You are his. But you're either increasing or you're backsliding. That's why sanctification is like this, you know, in your Christian life. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we growing? Are we learning the word of God? Are we increasing in these things? Are we considering the ways of God? Are we loving the things of God? Are we loving the worship of God? Are we seeking to honor and glorify him. That's why we need to hear the same thing over and over again. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, for me to write the same things to you is safe because there's heretics out there, but also it's good for us to be reminded of who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, and to press on, 
to press on in the Christian life, to not forget God, not forget our Savior, not forget the one we ought to worship aright. And thankfully, because he preserves us and will keep us till the end, thankfully, when we do forget, what does he do? Well, he reminds us, doesn't he? Sometimes he has something that jars us awake, whether it's a guy preaching on a Sunday night about bears devouring your rib cage or something like that, or something else that happens in your life. God awakens us, doesn't he? He awakens us sometimes it's just with the word as it goes forth, as it's preached. But God reminds us of who he is and what he has done. And he reminds us of what is pleasing to him and how we ought to honor and glorify him. So a lot of terrifying things we see in verses 1 through 8. But it is justified because of the guiltiness of Israel. And they're guilty because of their idolatry. So that's the guilt of Israel's idolatry, verses 1 through 8. Let's secondly look at the grave for the guilty in verses 9 through 16. And destruction continues in verse 9. And we see their destruction continues because they continue to reject the Lord God Most High. And so we see, O Israel, you are destroyed, you are ruined. Uh, Similar language is used in Genesis 6 uh, to describe the flood. Uh, Similar language is used in Genesis 19 to describe that Sodom and Gomorrah scenario and situation. So all these are types of final judgment, by the way. I mean, what we see at the flood is a type of final judgment. What we see with Sodom and Gomorrah is a type of final judgment. What we see with Israel going to captivity in 722 BC is a type of final judgment. And what we see with Jerusalem going into captivity in 586 is a type of judgment. And what we see in AD 70 with the temple destroyed is also a type of final judgment as well. The point being, God is going to come and judge the living and the dead. And if you are not in Christ, you're going to die in your trespasses and sins and be rightly judged. Israel, you are destroyed. And notice the language seems to be, I could have been your help, but you went somewhere else. You did not find your help in me, but your help is from me. Uh, Your help is in me. I would be your king. Where is any other? Where is anyone who would help you? Where did he go? Where are all your kings that you wanted and wished? And the language does seem to be uh, that of, as he speaks in the manner of men, of sorrow and sadness. Like, I could have been your help, but you have rejected me. And Israel did reject him many times, but they rejected him by wanting a king and why do they want a king in 1 Samuel 8? It's to be like the nations around, him, around them. Not that he was against the idea of kingship, but it was because the people of Israel wanted to be like the nations rather than wanting to be the people of God. So certainly 1 Samuel 8 and 1 Samuel 10 could be in view with all the kingly type references here. But also could, there could be a contemporary application. The last king in Israel was named was Hoshea. And, you know, it's similar to the word, to the name of the prophet Hosea. And there's some irony because Hosea means Yahweh saves and Hosea means Yahweh saves. And the interesting thing is Hosea is nowhere to be seen. Hosea, Hosea flees. He runs. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 70. Where did he go? Shall this king save you? Could also refer to the fact that they have a rival kingship to the Davidic line, which is in the south as well. Where are your kings? Shall they provide when I could have been that king? I will be your king. Where is any other? That he, may, he lowercase he, may save you in all your cities. And your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. 
I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. I gave you a king as judgment, and I have removed that king as well in my wrath. Where are your kings? They are no more. And then we see in verses 12 through 13 how their iniquity continues to abound. The destruction comes because their iniquity abounds. And once again, Israel is pictured as a foolish son. This is weird, I have to say. There's some interesting imagery that comes up in Scripture. This one is interesting. Verse 12 not, is not so interesting, but the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His son is stored up. What it's highlighting is their iniquity is overflowing. Their iniquity is bound up. It's come to its point. God knows it, and they cannot escape his gaze, and he's going to judge them for it. But then we see how they're foolish. They do not seek life. That seems to be what this image is trying to convey. And so we have this kind of birth pangs image uh, that we see throughout the scriptures, the sorrows of a woman in childbirth. Now, some of this language is used to describe coming judgment. You know, we see this with the Olivet Discourse. Although certainly there are other places that highlight that and perhaps some of that could be in view. I don't think that's the main point here because notice it changes to talk about him. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him because he's an unwise son. So this son is going to have this nearness to life, this nearness to being born, this nearness, but he's not going to seize upon it. It's like a child that will not come out of the womb. That is the image that is here. For he would stay long, not stay long where children are born, that he would stay. It's highlighting the fact that he will not take life. That seems to be what is in view here. He's, he's hanging out the opening of the womb rather than coming right out and embracing the life that is before him. He's a foolish son. Again, that was interesting. Again, as I read that, I'm like, what is going on here? Uh, and that seems to be uh, what is happening here. All this iniquity, all these things, which Israel would not seek that which is life. She or he is an unwise and foolish son, for he should not stay long where children are born. But he's staying there. He's remaining there, and he is not seizing life. He is not seizing a place of life, but remaining in his death, and the death that he died, which is what we see in 13.1. But then we have verses 14 through 16, and we see Israel's grave because of guilt. Now, verse 14 could be taken as the grave who destroys or the grave that is destroyed. I must confess that there's two ways that this could be taken. I think it is the positive way that we all know based upon 1 Corinthians 15. But it's plausible it could be taken another way as well, which would highlight the thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 all the more. All of these could be questions. Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? And then, O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, death, where is your destruction? That is, why haven't you come upon them yet? Not in a positive way. Where is your sting? Where is your destruction? But why hasn't it come yet? Pity is hidden from my eyes. So it could be negative in that way. But most take it positive, and I think it's positive as well. I do think the first part of verse 14 is, uh, they're, they're not questions, but statements. I will. 
I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. God has done this a lot throughout Hosea. He's given us some hard things. He's given Israel some hard things to awaken them. But usually sprinkled throughout, there are these promises of hope. And certainly this is one of them. I mean, we've just talked about bears and being torn open and, you know, this weird childbirth sort of uh, imagery that's here. And finally, an encouraging word. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. They have died, but I will one day ransom them. It's looking ahead to that new covenant. It's an eschatological prophecy pointing ahead to the, the age of the Messiah. I will redeem them from death. And so we can say, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your destruction? Pity is hidden from my eyes or consolation is not needed because there is death that has been destroyed. Death has been defeated. And so consolation is not needed because the battle has been won against death. And he does personify death and Hades here. They function as those who've kidnapped, those who've made desolate, those who destroy. But what happens? We have redemption. We have ransoming that God will bring. I will do this. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, death, where is your destruction? Pity or consolation uh, shall not be with my eyes. So I think it is encouraging. I think it is a promise of hope that I will ransom them from the grave. I will ransom them from death. God is going to do that thing. And again, there's this language. The jarring language is also meant to highlight the blessedness of what God will do. Here's how vile man is. Here's what judgment, uh, where, where guilt leads and where sin leads. But here is mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Though you die, you shall be made alive. Though you're dead, there is forgiveness in the one who can and does make alive. And so I think there is this promise of hope for the remnant. Again, the remnant. There are a true people of God in the old covenant era. And they will go into captivity with the nation. But as they go into captivity... They have Hosea 13, 14. God is going to ransom. They have Hosea chapter 2 and Hosea 6 and how one day he will revive them on the third day, which comes from and by whom? By Christ, who is raised on that third day. And once again, we have resurrection language here in verse 14. So God is going to defeat that grave. Even the guilty who are forgiven in Christ shall defeat that grave grave. But back to Samaria, verses 15 and 16. There is still going to be a grave for Israel as a body politic. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. We've seen this east wind type language in chapter 12, highlighting the dryness that comes from the desert, but it's highlighting how God is going to use Assyria as his instrument of judgment. And we see the Lord does this. The east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. It's what's going to happen when Assyria comes and plunders the northern kingdom, takes them and removes them. God is doing it by way of Assyria, so they are going to come. We've seen Assyria mentioned throughout this prophecy. Israel sought help from Assyria, but those whom they sought help him are going to be uh, their downfall as well. And so God is the one who does it. God is going to judge it, them. And we see, verse 16, Samaria is held guilty. 
coming back to what we saw in verse 1, she has done wrong and she is liable to judgment because of what she has done. She has rebelled against her God. And so what shall happen? War-type language, the atrocities of war is the image that is used. They shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child ripped open. All this is descriptive of the casualties of war. I do believe there is a place for just war, but the proposition always needs to be all wars are evil. And all wars are evil, not just for the fighting that actually happens between the military, but also the militaries, but also because of the casualties, the civilians, the this destruction and sadness that comes by way of war. And that is what we see here. These are the casualties. These are the civilians. These are the ones who shall be, that's the image that is used, the infants dashed to pieces, the women with child ripped open. It is jarring language, isn't it? And McKay, again, highlights the purpose. One, it's to jar us awake, to cause us to pay attention, to cause us to see uh, what's going on here and to be awake. But also, there is that promise, and this is going to sound weird, but we saw this in Hosea chapter 9, is that when there are no more children, when there's no birth and no pregnancy and no conception, when God gives Israel a miscarrying womb and dry breasts, what does it mean? Idolatry is no more. Now, Hosea 9 was one of the hardest to preach uh, with what we went through with that and with what we saw there, but similar sort of purposes are in view with chapter 13. God is going to end idolatry because of their wickedness. It is jarring language to awaken, but it's also meant to highlight God is going to end it. Their infants, their line shall be no more. Their women with child ripped open. Idolatry shall be no more. It's tough language, but it communicates an important truth. And I think McKay says such dire presentations of judgment are intended to cause the unthinking to reassess their eternal destiny. And those who are already reconciled by blood to redouble their efforts to snatch out of the fire those who heedless of their who are heedless of their danger. Tough language, but there is a specific purpose that God has for this language. Are we awake? Are we terrified? Are we uh, aware of what is going on? Are we aware of our eternal destiny? Have we looked upon Christ? Have we believed upon him? Have we called upon him? That is what this language is meant to elicit. It's caused it to cause us to think. And if you have looked to Christ and found mercy in him, be thankful. Recognize the goodness and the mercy and forgiveness of God that you have. See what sin deserves. See where guilt leads. And thanks be to God that we're no longer guilty because of Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God that though we die, we shall be raised. And so I do want to close on some encouraging, a uh, few encouraging notes. Uh, so you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. All this is meant to cause us to reflect on how God destroys sin and death. How God destroys the wages of sin, which is death. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends a lot of time unpacking the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. 
because there were men at Corinth who were threatened Corinth who said that there is no resurrection from the dead. And so if you have no resurrection from the dead, then you have nothing. And so he goes on to talk about the first and last Adam. He goes on to talk about what the gospel is, believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Goes on to talk about the glorious body that we shall have, a resurrected body, what that looks like. And then he goes on to talk about our final victory in verses 50 and following. He says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You have to have a resurrected body. Your present flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We need to have that celestial body. Christ is that pledge for us in heaven. Christ has been resurrected. Our body shall be conformed to him. It's our self-same bodies, but conformed to our Christ resurrected body. The blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed at that final day in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's Isaiah 25. That was our call to worship. And then we see Hosea 13. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has died the death of death that we might live in him. And when that final day comes, we are going to sing and say, Hosea 13, 14, world without end. Henry says, Christ has abolished death, has broken the power of it and altered the property of it, and so enabled us to triumph over it. This promise he has made, and it shall be, be made good to all that are his, for repentance shall be hidden from his eyes. He will never recall this sentence passed on death in the grave, for he is not a man that he should repent. Thanks be to God, therefore, who gives us the victory. That is what we have in Christ now, and that is the promise and hope that we have for the time that Christ comes again. And though we die, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a heavenly body. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit now. We long for the resurrected body that we shall receive when Christ comes again, when our bodies shall be raised and conformed to his heavenly body. Hosea is prophesying concerning these realities, prophesying concerning the time of the new covenant and the blessings and the glorification that comes from Christ Jesus. And if you're a believer, though you die, you will live. That is the encouragement that we have. But if you do not know Christ, if you have not believed on him, you are dead and guilty, and the terror of the Lord shall come upon you. Because as Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your mercy and we are thankful for your redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. 
we are thankful that he is the one who died and rose again. And we're thankful that he's ascended into heaven and he's at your right hand now and shall come again. And we know that though we die, we shall live. And we know that we live now. We know that our, we have a heavenly heart already, but we long for our heavenly body when Christ comes again. And as we consider the seriousness of sin and the forgetfulness of man and the wickedness of man, it magnifies your grace all the more that you would save wretches like us, that we were once lost, but now we're found, once blind, but now we see. We know that this is because of you and because of your redemption, because of your application of that redemption, the hearts and lives of your people. And so we ask and pray that we would not be forgetful that we would be a people who remembers the gospel, who clings to the gospel, who clings to Christ in who he is and what he has done for wretched sinners like us. So we ask that you would be with us tonight. We pray that you would encourage us and uplift us tonight, that you would awaken us if we need to have a bit of an, uh, be jarred awake just a little bit, if we've grown a little bit lazy in the things of God. We know that there is forgiveness for those failures. All our sins are forgiven in Christ, but we ask by your spirit you would help us to press on in this present world. And if there are any here today who do not know you, please show them the seriousness of sin, the terror uh, of judgment and where their guilt shall lead. And may they find mercy and forgiveness in Christ by fleeing to him, by finding mercy in him. For it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet we are thankful that we know the living God by faith. And may these ones know you by faith as well. So be with us, we pray. Help us, we pray. Give us the strength, we pray, uh, to walk this present world. And thank you that you shall be with us until the end. So thank you for all you do. In the name of